Start by taking refuge. I take refuge in the Buddha. I take refuge in the Dharma. I take refuge in the Sangha. The earth is dreaming you. What if this was a dream? This breath, this thought, this shiver, this memory, this hope, this breeze, this fear, all dream, a dream. In the Buddhist tradition, the metaphor of dream is used to point at the nature of our experience as being dreamlike. But what are these qualities of dreaming and how do they refer to the qualities of our direct experience? So during a dream, a whole world is created. And there are often a set of rules or abiding principles that create the conditioned reality of the dream. So for example, in some dreams, it's quite natural to be able to fly or to speak another language or to communicate with animals or interdimensional beings. Or it's quite natural that you're a child or um, of a different culture in your dream. In other dreams, the same sorts of rules apply as in daily life. Certain anxieties, fears, or afflictive emotions are exaggerated. Also in dreams, the thoughts, characters, images, and scenery and setting is often in flux, continuously changing. It's impossible unless one is lucid to press the pause button on a dream. Everything is changing. And even if one is lucid, pause will usually dismantle the whole dream scene into its essence, the clear light of mind's nature. We might also notice that in dreams, we can be identified with a character in the dream what's often referred to as the dream ego. We, we might call this character me or I in the dream. And yet, even if we are identified with a dream character, we often are aware of much more than what that dream character would normally be aware of. We are aware of the whole set and setting of the dream beyond what this single character me could know. When we wake up from a dream, what happens? If it was a nightmare, we often wake up with a sense of relief or ease to discover that we are safe in our own beds. And that test that we didn't study for or that monster or armed bandit we were running from were just images in our dream. And here we are now, present, lying safely on the earth or in our beds. And as the night dream fades, it is often quickly replaced with our daylit reality, what we call reality, which we consider 
often much more real than the characters that move through our minds in the night. But the proposal here is that perhaps waking life is just another dream. So what happens when you wake up from a nighttime dream? Wake up, and perhaps if you were sleeping outside last night, or if you're a guest here, the mind goes, where am I? At the monastery, okay. And then begins planning out the morning. I need to get my warm clothes, my coffee, should I take a shower? Oh, it's so cold out, I don't wanna get up. What am I doing here anyway? Or perhaps it has a more negative flair. What a crude way to wake up with a school bell or that horn, which is an aversion dream. Or maybe it's, I'm so happy to be awake. This is a beautiful morning. I wanna be the first person in the circle. Or I want to be, I want to go for a walk before morning zazen. Or maybe I should do yoga. That's a greedy dream. Or perhaps we fall right back asleep into a dull stupor or we stumble around unaware of what we are doing, perhaps knock into somebody else's tent or step on a slug or into deer poop. So these, um, that's an ignorance dream. These are the three lenses, a little exaggerated, that we often put on reality and yet call it reality. And these, again, are greed, anger, and aversion. Greed, that sense of wanting, uh, longing, but also just that tendency to plan and try to get everything, all the good things, for me. <laughs> and the aversion is that just stealing against uh, existence, stealing against what's happening, complaining, judging. And ignorance is kind of just going to sleep, falling into that dull state of mind. And there's nothing wrong with any of these. The Buddha taught that these are just, as humans who have been conditioned as human beings, these are just the ways that we've learned to cope with reality. And these, these thoughts shape our reality. They do. And you can start to notice which ones shape your reality during Sashin, condition your view. And you could say they create a dream of a sense of self, a dream of separation, the dream of the thinking mind, the narrative self. And most of the time, as beings that identify as human, as most of the time, we're caught in this dream. The dream of I, me, mine. Notice during Sashin how, how many of your thought sentences begin with I, or are about me, or about mine. Eckhart Tolle calls this the dream of my predicament always trying to fix or get it, get it better. And this can be subtle. The movements of mind that demand a kind of full attention to ensure that this person, this single individual, this ego is comfortable, 
safe and protected at all times. Call this a dream, but it's more like a nightmare. And as people who have affinity for Zen practice, which is all of us because we're here at a Zen retreat, even if you didn't priorly think that you had affinity with Zen, you do. I think we have a deep intuition or a deep intimation that this dream of the self is the cause of our dis-ease, the cause of our feelings of separation or exile from the rest of the world, from the great earth, from the more than human community, and even from our fellow human beings, family members, communities. So Zazen meditation, which is seating, sitting Zen meditation, which is what we're doing when we're sitting in this circle together. And Sashin are practices that can bring us back into wholeness. Because actually, that's what reality is. We were never separate from our home, from our place on this earth, as part of this earth from our place in this universe. We're never separate from anything. We just got caught in the dream. And we keep getting caught in the dream. Charlotte Jokobeck, um, one of the great contemporary teachers who is Chosen Roshi, the abbess is here, peer, a, p- a position we affectionately call her Dharma sister because they both studied with the same teacher, Maizumi Roshi, at the Zen Center of Los Angeles. And Charlotte Joko Beck, she rewrote uh, the Four Noble Truths from the Buddha into four practice principles. And these are reminders about the nature of reality. And they go like this. Caught in the self-centered dream, only suffering. Caught in the self-centered dream, only suffering, holding to self-centered thoughts, exactly the dream, holding to self-centered thoughts, exactly the dream, each moment, life as it is, the only teacher, being just this moment, compassion's way. So here, this teaching is given in four points. And they point to the mistaken view on which this whole sense of exile and separation rests, what we call in the Buddhist tradition, suffering. And we're talking about suffering here as the fundamental dis-ease that underlines all other diseases, all other forms of relative suffering from the very extreme uh, to the very mild. So this um, fundamental dis-ease is what we're talking about here during session. And in this teaching, in these four practice principles, we also find our way back home a home which I said before, we actually have never really left. So what is the disease? 
Joko Beck says, being caught in the self-centered dream. What is this self-centered dream and how do we get caught up in it? The next line says, well, it's holding to self-centered thoughts. That's the dream. Well, what is the alternative? And she says, well, this moment, life as it is. And that's exactly what we're doing in just our basic meditation mindfulness practice. You notice, you recognize that the attention is caught in a thought or identified with a particular judgment, anxiety, idea, fear, comparison, memory, greed, anger, ignorance, greed, aversion, ignorance. We notice that. We notice that identification, that stickiness, that holding on, and we let go. The moment that we recognize usually that uh, that stickiness is eased, we let go and disidentify, even if it's just for a hair's breadth of a second, and we come back to this breath, this body sensation, this sound of the breeze, this light from the sun, this texture. And as we come back to whatever sense experience we're coming back to, we come back to flow. The senses are always in the present moment, and this is life as it is. This flow of sensation, the earth's flow, the earth's breath, this is life as it is the flow of this life as it is. Oh, the switch from holding to self-centered thought to present moment experience is the pivot upon which freedom, liberation, wholeness is found, known, or you could say rediscovered. And this pivot is something we learn to practice. It is merely habit, and albeit feels very strong at times, strong habit, but nonetheless habit to be caught in the self-centered dream. The thinking mind, what I sometimes call the small M mind, says, I don't like this. I want that. I'm bored. I'm lonely. And it's just that simple kind of kindergarten phrase that usually brings forth a cascade of thoughts, feelings, emotions, and reactions to that simple sentence, that simple thought. And then thoughts of past experience, perceived future difficulties, plans to remedy (coughs) or fix, dot, 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 take over. In Zen practice, we actualize the pivot. Hungzhou called Zazen the practice of actualizing the fundamental point or the fundamental pivot. How do we do this? Sounds so simple, but we bring our attention to what's actually happening. We start to see through this screen or veil of assumptions that we call my life. 
and ask very openly, very sincerely, very genuinely, wait, if this whole dream is pivoting on this I thought, what does this I thought or who does this I thought actually refer to? Where is the one who doesn't like? Who is the one who wants? What is the one who is bored or lonely? Because that's where the assumption starts. We assume I is referring to something, someone. The dream begins with this simple I thought. And then the cascade of misperceptions and misidentifications happen. Because <laughs> that's what we have habitually associated with this I thought. So what does this I thought refer to? Who does this I refer? And this in investigation is one that um, doesn't really happen with thought. Your thought can be kind of the prompter into the inquiry, but it's actually looking, feeling directly wait, I have this sense of I, or the next time you have an I thought. And sometimes the I is missing, but there's, it's implied. <laughs> well, I don't like the sound of her voice. Oh, who is that I referring to? Is that I, is it simply a thought? And if it's a thought, well, how long does it last? Is it constant? Constantly saying, I, 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 Is it a sensation? And which one? Is it the sense of pressure behind the eyes? Oftentimes people say that's where they feel the sense of self, right behind the eyes. But if that's true, we'll investigate it a little bit more. Is there really someone behind the eyes? And when you look for that pressure or feel that pressure, is it constant? Or is it the sense of hearing? And hearing, we hear, in a way we hear that uh, I thought arise. Does the eye, does the eye exist in the ears or in the sense of hearing? Hearing's happening constantly. Or is the eye in the tension in the heart? Or is it found in the brain, in the head? This in investigation is, it can sound silly in a way, but it's, it's interesting to look, somatically look or feel with your direct experience. Wait, where is, do I have a sense of self or a sense of I am right now? Like how constant is that sense of self? If you look, I'm willing to bet it usually only arises when there's a suffering thought in there. 
oh, I don't like this and we're taking a position. And there's contraction. But maybe when you're just lying on the earth in the sun, there's really no sense of being separate from anything. In the Advaita Vedanta tradition of non-duality, this I am, they talk about the I am, and it refers to the one who is aware. And right now, recognize that you are aware. How do you know that you're aware? Maybe one of our most basic experiences fundamental to being alive as a human being. There is awareness. Awareness is happening through the senses all of the time. Happens through the eyes, we call it seeing. Through the ears, we call it hearing. Through the body, we call it feeling. Through the mind, we call it thinking. And awareness, the whole time is happening freely. We divide it up into the senses like that. But really, you can see with the body. You can hear with the body. You can see with the ears. This I am. Awareness is like the sun-infused sky. It's open, spacious, and bright, lucid, clear. And yet, like the sky, as we can see as we sit under the sky and wake under the sky, that the sky is inseparable from the weather that's moving through it, from the clouds, from the air from all the weather patterns, the breeze, the bird song, the airplanes, the earth, the planets, stars, trees, people, buildings, animals, all appear in the sky, appear and change within the presence of sky. And isn't that what we do as conditioned beings? in constant change. Rain comes and sprinkles and goes, wind blows and breezes and stills. Trees sway and then stop, sometimes shedding a limb. People eat, think, shit, sing, make love, emote, feel deeply or not, get old, die. So perhaps we are all this whole earth and all its beings are the sky's dream, the universe's dream. I am the movements of the sky's mind. Yet the sky remains lucid, clear, spacious, holding it all, unaffected by the comings and goings of things. And we call this the unconditioned, the unborn, Buddha mind, Buddha meaning awakened, 
awakened mind. And this unconditioned, unborn Buddha mind is the ground of our being, is our true source. Jokobek says, being just this moment, can you be any other place, any other one? Being just this moment, compassion's way. When we are not just identified with this body or this apparent self and its apparent thoughts and dreams, we are resting in awareness, in the I am before thoughts, in our sky-like lucid mind. And, and everything that arises is our body. We are creating and being created fresh each moment. And that activity that springs forth as complete creativity is compassion, is the way of compassion. So this last practice principle from Joko Beck asks us, can you see this life as compassion, as the way of compassion? It invites us to look, how is compassion being experienced right now? Dogen Zenji says in the Mountains and Rivers Sutra, which we are chanting at noon service, or before the lunchtime meal, which isn't exactly noon. Mountains possess complete virtue with nothing lacking. Mountains possess complete virtue with nothing lacking. Mountains are exactly themselves, allowed to be themselves. Their countenance is quiet. Did you ever notice this about the natural world? Trees, stones, mountains, rivers, and lakes. Each, though also in movement, have a deep presence the presence of being oneself completely. This presence is sometimes felt or experienced as silence or deep peace. Melodoma Somme, a great African shaman of, the, shaman of the Dakara people says, the power of quiet is great. It generates the same feelings and everyone it generates the same feelings in everything one encounters. It vibrates with the cosmic rhythm of oneness. It is everywhere available to anyone at any time. It is us, the force within that makes us stable, trusting, and loving. It is contemplation contemplating us. Peace is letting go returning to the silence that cannot enter the realm of words because it is too pure to be contained in words. This is why the tree, the stone, the river, and the mountain are quiet. The power of quiet is great. It is everywhere and available to anyone at any time. It is us, the force within us that makes us stable, trusting, and loving. It is contemplation contemplating us. 
Peace is letting go, returning to the silence that cannot enter the realm of words because it is too pure to be contained in words. This is why the tree, the stone, the river, and the mountain are quiet. Can you feel the quiet beneath the words? Quiet in the breeze. Quiet in the sun. In the bird song. Quiet in the human thought. It's one thing to pay attention to. You can, as um, the mind begins to settle, sometimes it can seem so loud, the thinking mind. But is there quiet as well? Can quiet coexist with thought? What is the great quiet that is us, the force within us that makes us stable, trusting, and loving? The great quiet of I am-ness, of sky and tree. What Melodoma says is the vibration of the cosmic rhythm of oneness. We can come to know the silence before words, the silence that does not belong to the realm of words. One way to do this is through deeply listening to the natural world, listening not only with the ears, but with the whole body, all the senses. Listening, aware, every pore. Listening with the eyes. Listening with the mind. When we listen deeply, we can begin to recognize and perhaps let go of our self-centered dream, or at least turn down its volume. Really, like literally, like turn down its volume so that we can take in the silence and vibration of the natural world. Put our thoughts in their place. Usually the volume of thoughts is just turned way, way up. And so that's all we hear. And there's all these other sounds of the world coming to us through the senses. But for whatever reason, that volume is just so loud. We're just so compelled to keep listening. But if we turn down the volume of the thoughts of the thinking mind, that it's at equal volume to everything else, then the thoughts are part of Earth's dreaming part of sky's dreaming. They don't need to belong to us anymore. We aren't caught in this dream of I, me, and mine. Oh, and I thought that's just part of the dream of the earth. 
just equal weight as the pain in the knee or the bird song or the breeze or the taste in the mouth. Perhaps this whole experience is being dreamed. We are being dreamed into existence moment by moment. In the Aboriginal traditions of Australia, dreaming is communal. One would never interpret a dream that visited them in the night as a personal dream but would instead receive it as a gift to be given to the community, to be shared. If what we call this life is a dream, who is the dreamer? And how is it being shared? And what of the insights, thoughts, understanding, visions, awakenings, and dreams that flow through this body, heart, and mind? Who do they belong to? How are they being shared? Who is dreaming you? Who is sharing in this dream of you? I notice when I sleep outside, my night dreams change. Last night I was visited by a mythic bird, lion, human creature, and many different animals, all living harmoniously in the yard forest of my childhood home, miniature horses, polar bears, white turkeys, peacocks. Perhaps this is a welcome dream from the more than human community, reminding us that we are part of this earth body, part of the biodiversity and intelligence of this planet. That we directly experience both the suffering of the earth and its magical wonder. This sashin has this quality of camping out in the backyard. Like we could go inside, but we're not. <laughs> and it's evocative of that innocence and wonder of a child. I don't know if you ever did that when you were a kid. We would even set up camp like in my living room. So we didn't have to sleep in our beds, building tents out of blankets and chairs. And occasionally we would camp outside in the yard. This innocence and wonder of a child is a beautiful ingredient to tap into during this sashin. The natural world is full of it. Innocent possessing complete virtue with nothing lacking, each dandelion, each bird song, each bird, each insect, each slug. This innocence is, and wonder is part of how we rediscover ourselves as part of the innocence and wonder of the natural world the universe, the forest, trees, rocks, and sky. The work of Sashin practice can be challenging. It hurts sometimes to feel how active and judgmental the thinking mind can be. And yet the practice itself is so simple. 
I think it's so simple. We often don't trust that it could be that simple. The invitation always is to return here to the presence of this moment, to the flow of breath, to the sensation of a body sitting on the earth, to open the senses and be part of this mysterious and wondrous universe. David Bohm, a physicist, says that everything that is visible and knowable to us, from the microscopic to the vast expanses of space, is like the sunlight on a foam, on the foam of the top of waves that rise on the surface of an infinite ocean, an ocean that is completely invisible and unknowable by us. So everything that we know right now as human beings is just the foam on an infinitely vast ocean that is unknowable. So we really don't know what's going on. Like we really don't know what's going on <laughs> as individuals, as a species. And I think a big reason that we suffer is because we have an intimation of the vastness of the cosmos and the great mystery of being. And the ego gets scared. It wants to feel safe, so it tries to find control through knowledge, intelligence, facts, being cute or lovable, etc. Choose your strategy. And it can feel counterintuitive to let go, to surrender these habits of mind and body that we developed over the course of a lifetime. You could think lifetimes if you think of the generational habits that we've inherited from family and humans. <laughs> and we've developed these to feel safe. And so to let go and surrender is a counterintuitive process, but maybe it is actually the way to freedom, peace, joy, and to discovering that vastness that we actually are. Making friends with uncertainty is very much a part of Zazen practice. Each time we sit down, there's a way in which just taking that posture is an invitation to the unknown, <laughs> a welcoming to, all right, I don't know what's going on. I'm going to sit here and allow the world to happen me. This sitting in presence we're announcing so many other things we could be doing to distract ourselves, to get more knowledge, to feel safer. Because we intimate that, we intuit that those strategies are not satisfying. The way to peace is 
is letting go of all of that. We make friends with uncertainty in this practice and being outdoors is a great barometer for how we're doing with this task. Because the outdoors, the natural world is less controlled by the temperaments of human desire for comfort. This is from Ben Connolly. He's writing commentary on uh, the grassrooft hermitage, which is a chant we'll do every evening. I read this right before our retreat. He says, it's good to spend time in places where the things that people have made and manipulated are fewer. And things that have evolved together over the millennia are everywhere we look. Since we developed alongside everything else, it's nice to spend time with our family, birds, bushes, deer, and insects, canyons, streams, hills, and plains. It's good to be reminded that all things are related. And it's nice to be where we can see more clearly just how beyond our command things really are. We can settle in, into our mutuality and let go of the illusion of control. Before this retreat, we will gradually make our way into the forest and meadows for Zazen. And this is an opportunity to learn from and rediscover ourselves as part of the natural world. So please approach the forest and meadows and everything and everyone you encounter with respect as a teacher, a relative, an elder. Compassion's way. I'll leave you with this story that really picked me up this year as the reality of the climate catastrophe is felt deeper and deeper in my own soma. Zen teacher Unman said, medicine and sickness heal each other. The whole earth is medicine. What is the self? So this is a koan, koan from the Zen tradition. And koans are often based on folk tales that were common in the time that they were told. So this is a folk tale from China. And the folk tale behind this koan goes like this. The Bodhisattva, which is an awakening being, Manjushri asks her attendant Sudana to go gather medicinal herbs. She said, if there is something that is not medicine, bring it to me. If there is something that is not medicine, bring it to me. So Sudana, who's going through the forest, looking for gathering medicinal herbs, looking to see if he finds anything that is not medicine. And he goes back to his teacher, Manjushri, and says, there is nothing that is not medicine. Manjushri said, well, then gather something that is medicine. And Sudana picked up a blade of grass and handed it to Manjushri. Manjushri is the Bodhisattva of wisdom. Manjushri held it up and showed it to the assembly saying, 
this medicine can kill people and it can also bring people to life. Another message from Compassion. What is ready to die this week? What is ready for you to let go? What is asking to be watered, to be restored to life? Returning to the quiet of the natural world, breathing together with the forest in this great activity of reciprocity. Let these words wash through you. And if anything sticks, may it be the medicine that awakens you from your self-centered dreaming, even if it's just for a moment, that restores you to your true life. May all beings be free. May all beings be happy.